Here we go, just to get started this morning. Name a term used in bowling. Strike, Strike anything else? Spare. Spare. Gutter. <laughs> Here's what some said. Uh, they said gutter ball, turkey. What's the turkey? There you go. The pin, split, spare. And number one was what you people get. I get the gutter ball. You guys get strikes all the time. Here's one for you. Name an animal. Let, its name begins with C, but you wouldn't want to eat it. <laughs> Cat. What else? Camel? Okay. Now, we're challenging. This is, this is tough spelling this morning. Crow? Crocodile? I would like to try alligator crocodile just to see. But I bet you it tastes like... Yeah, right? Okay. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Somebody try it? Everything tastes like chicken the way, yeah. yeah. Any other animals? You said several of them. Animal, is a cricket an animal? We'll call it an insect. Okay. Chimpanzee. Here's what they said in their thing. Coyote, cheetah, crow, cougar, camel, and number one was cat. Okay. Now we're going back into your childhood days. Something you lined up for at school. Lunch, recess, bathroom, fire drill. Oh, you got them already. Here you go. You guys are good. This is, you're amazing. Name something you did when you were in kindergarten, but again, some of you may not have had this. Something you did as a kid in kindergarten that you wish you could do now. <laughs> Take a nap. Take a nap. You didn't have, see, some of you didn't have that fortunate opportunity. You were just so smart they passed you right into first grade. Okay. Anybody else? Something in kindergarten that, what's that? Recess. Nap time. What else? Show and tell. Woo. Okay, here we go. Get messy, free snacks, color and paint, playtime or recess. And number one was naps. Okay. We'll give you that chance right around 11 o'clock. Name something not real that kids believe in. Boogeyman, Santa, Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy. What's that? Unicorns? Yeah, yeah. You know, parents dress up. Here's what they said. Witches, fairy godmothers, monsters, magic, Easter bunny, superheroes, tooth fairy, number one was Santa. Now, the reason I ask that is somebody had answered in that survey when they took it, somebody had put God. And they said, wait a minute, not real. And that family didn't believe, they explained afterwards in the thing, that they didn't believe there was a God. How do you answer somebody when they say, you know, why do you believe there's a God? We've, we talked about some of this last week. Let me just remind you that in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you, matter of fact, you're in Genesis 1, if you want to just turn to 1 Peter 3 quickly, this is the passage that talks about that idea that there's going to be the, uh, the people that are going to come against you and that we should respond. I, I'm going to say it and I should read it. It would be far better if I have you draw it to Scripture rather than me. First Peter, where he's making this comment, and uh, it's a tremendous passage. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, 
happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, while having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be put to shame or ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. And so we made these observations, and this is where we start. This whole class topic is with this in mind. Some folk will question and oppose our beliefs. They're going to ask you about it. They're going to challenge you about it. The idea is we're not supposed to fear them or their challenges. It's okay, by the way, if somebody challenges you and says, how do you know there's a God? How do you know your Bible is true? Why do you believe Jesus is God? How do you get this idea of a trinity? There's nothing wrong with that. If your kids ask the question, or grandkids, and they ask the question, how do we know that we'll go to heaven? That's okay. If it's asked within that idea of a very sincere searching, and we're not supposed to be afraid to be able to answer individuals. All of us, all of us, emphasis, are to give an answer. The word is apologia, give a reasonable explanation or a defense of our beliefs. So you are required to have a knowledge, a basic knowledge of what you believe. We are not to be condescending, nor out of control when we answer. We're not supposed to turn to somebody and say, well, you're an idiot for asking that question. Well, that's great. That's, that's one way to really you know, keep the conversation going when you're attacking them. That's not, that's not wise. We must live consistently with our belief system in order to have credibility. Okay, when we give a defense. So we take that and we say, okay, what do you do? What do I do? And it's good for all of us, no matter where our training, what our understanding, it's good for all of us to back up at times and be able to review how would you answer some basic questions, such as how do we know there is a God? We pointed out last week, and we're, we covered a lot more material than I'm going to share right now. We covered last week that several times... Uh, when you get into this discussion, people will answer with these types of thoughts. The cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the anthropological argument. They are big words, but they're very simple concepts. The cosmological argument is basically saying everything has a cause and a beginning. Something, something happened to make this world to come into being. And so the cosmological argument is very simple, that there's cause and then and then. Uh, beginning and cause. The teleological argument is there's order and design in every complex system. And so how did this order and design come into the complex system of the universe? What caused everything to get started? There's two basic approaches. There's one approach that some people would say the beginning of everything is what? Okay, God, God creating, basically creation or chance. That's your two options. Chance or creation, both with the C, if that helps you to remember it. Remember it. And so those who say everything started by random chance, which is where evolution starts, that something just got everything started, the bang, or something randomly happened, and then it, then it started the rest of it in its process where there was cause and effect afterwards. You and I are going to say that just doesn't make any sense. A designer, a creator is where we start with. And by the way, both those who hold to chance and those who hold to creation, they are believing it based upon their faith system. What do they believe? Do you believe it's possible 
for something to randomly happen, such as the universe? Do you believe there is a creator designer? And so when we look at it, we say, wow, there is just so, the, the body itself. And I don't mean to bore, but I just find this fascinating at times, just getting some of this data where it says the design in the human body, just some information. Engineers had never devised a machine to equal God's supreme achievement, your body. Athletes can sprint at almost 25 miles an hour. Most of us can't. In my car, yes, okay. But 25 miles an hour, throw a ball at more than 100 miles an hour, high jump over 7 feet, but even our everyday activities are powered by a system that in its complexity and efficiency would make the most sophisticated robots seem inadequate. Take the circulatory system. Every minute of our lives, the heart pumps 10 pints of blood, 30 pints during brisk exercise, through about 60,000 miles of arteries, veins, and capillaries. An adult contains between uh, that 8 pints to, of blood, average to 10. The average for a man is, just what I said, containing about 25 trillion red cells to carry the oxygen, 25 billion white cells to fight disease. Some white cells have a life cycle of only 12 hours. Red cells have a life of about 120 days. The capillaries, tiny tubes servicing the bloodstream, have a total surface area that would cover one and a half acres of a field. Not all are opened at once. Otherwise, all the blood in the body would drain into them within seconds, like a flood water into a swamp. Instead, local chemical changes in nerves to the muscular portion of microscopic blood vessels operate to maintain the cycle of opening and closing every few minutes. One part of the body that needs blood all the time is the lungs. The capillaries continuously take up oxygen from the tiny air sacs of the lungs while releasing excess carbon dioxide. A baby is born with 305 bones, but some of those fuse together later until there are just 206, though the number might vary, operated by 650 muscles and more than 100 joints. Tendons anchoring muscle to bone are strong enough to stand a stress of 8 tons per square inch, and the thigh bones take a strain of half a ton per square inch while walking. All this wonderful, complex uh, creation of God is encased in a flexible, waterproof covering called skin. The average man has about 20 square feet of it, which wears away and is replaced every few weeks. Set, the skin, set in the skin are up to 5 million hairs, each lasting about three years. <laughs> 9,000 taste buds come to our aid in choosing what we like, aided by millions of nerve cells. 4 million receptors in the skin enable us to feel, distinguish between hot from cold, experience or, and, and experience pain or comfort. That's why this passage, I, where he says, we are fearfully... And wonderfully made. I mean, you start just thinking about different parts of the body and how they function. And Bob, I think it was you last week that said even the older you get, the more you're amazed of how our body functions as it doesn't function the way it should anymore. Is how did that keep going all that time? It's amazing when we think about this complexity. Now, with this in mind, before we go any further, does the Bible support the idea that God can be seen to a degree? God can be evidenced through creation. Does it? Okay. What passage? Romans 1. That's where I wanted to start. I said Genesis 1. Romans 1 is where we want to start. Romans 1. Forgive me for 
jumping the gun. Romans chapter 1, this is an important passage and just to see what God is saying in this text. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and remember how Romans begins. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is emphasizing the sinfulness of man. Then chapters 4 and 5 talk about the salvation, and then it talks about how the process of even, uh, we go through sanctification, security, all the way through the book of Romans. In the very first three chapters, we're talking about the sinfulness of man. In that first section, he stops and he says, okay, how many people are going to be held accountable for their sin? And why should they be held accountable if they don't know? And so he answers that question in Romans chapter 1, and I'm picking up in the middle of the conversation where he says, starting in verse 18, just to get a little bit of context, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much ungodliness? Okay, all and all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. What's he mean? In other words, they don't hold the truth. They haven't kept the truth or they've perverted it. Where, how did they pervert it? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, plural. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God or knew of a God, they did what? But they didn't do what? They didn't glorify him as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto what? Corruptible man, birds, beasts, creeping things. What's he mean by that? What's he mean by they changed the image of the uncorruptible God into corruptible things. Idols. Idols. Okay, let's answer this question. What is one way God revealed himself to people? Creation. Okay, thank you. What did creation reveal about him? In this text, what is God, re what's revealed? What? I say, say it again. Some, his, okay, all, what did you say? His whole attributes? Okay, he's invisible. His power. What else did you say? The Godhead, okay. What else? Okay. In this text, what else does it say? Now, wisdom is obviously there because of the design. Anything else that you got? Okay. So we got this. We have his existence, deity, and power. Okay. God is. Okay. The idea of he's powerful to create. That's important. That's here. His deity. He's the Godhead. He's above. He's not man. He's above man. It also shows that idea again. He is over them. If he is over us, we are eventually going to be blank to him. We're going to be accountable. Okay? That there's going to be an accountability one day. And he mentions this later on. Again, about that accountability. So everybody has that innate understanding by looking at creation. If they, if they have the ability to think to reason, to process. There is a creator, designer, that we're going to be answerable, and everybody has that ability, that, opportun that opportunity. Now, some will corrupt it. We'll see in a second. To whom was this revealing given? How many people have this option, opportunity? 
all people, again, you and I would just make a small qualification of people who have reasoning powers. Because some people could not understand, and we understand that some people with handicaps, that could be possible. Okay? What did many people do with the revelation that God gave them? They still do today. Okay, they suppress it, they pervert it, they go into idols, and we're living in a day and age where idols are basically all gone. Do people still in this world worship idols? Do they worship animals? Yeah, there are regions where they're worshiping the animals, they're worshiping the, the different creatures. Um, uh, just to give you an idea, there's that whole um, uh, religion of animism. Animism is the idea of worshiping creation by saying there's elements of gods within creation, like the wolves, the owls, the nature itself. That is very popular even in Indian cultures and cultures of that sort. Okay, and so animism is a religion as well as just blatant uh, denial of it. So we have this important passage that says God has and agrees he has revealed himself in nature to a degree. It even says in Hebrews 3, that it's one of those passages I gloss over, you probably caught it, but it says every house is built by someone. That's an obvious. And then he says he that built all things is God. And so we have the idea, God is the creator, God's the designer, it fits the cosmological as well as the teleological arguments. But let's go on, there's another argument that we mentioned, that's the anthropological argument, it's basically morals and conscience, that is amongst all people. Their argument goes this, that though cultures and training affect laws, and we know that's true, different cultures have different laws, different penalties, different viewpoints at times. But overall, though cultures and training affect laws and social interaction, every thinking person has an innate understanding of right and wrong which distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. In other words, what we're saying is this. Every individual knows certain things are wrong. Such as what? what throughout all cultures, what is wrong for the most part? You said murder. Okay. Now, there may be, they may change that and quantify it to a degree, but basically every culture knows murder is wrong. Anything else? Usually, usually the property rights. That most everybody understands what's mine is mine, not for you to take. And if you take it, there's a problem. Anything else that's kind of in most everybody's moral conscience? Okay, lying, unless in their culture they twist it. But most of the time... The lying is there, and so we have this idea of needlessly harming. We have even the idea of family. In many cultures, family values are there, are they not? That there is a, there is a, a, a protection of family. Okay, there's that, that there's a moral code that's within people. Most all people call, value uh, loved ones, property rights. Where do these ideas come from? Where does this innately come? Now, understand, it's, we're taught those things and quantifications of those things that are influence of our culture. But where do all these cultures have this commonality? Where does it start? Because Romans 1 tells us this, that you know, this idea of a divine being, and this is true, anthropologically, do almost every civilization have a deity? That's a truism. Okay, it basically starts with this idea. It's in Romans chapter 2. 
verse 18. If you've not marked it, you want to mark this. Okay, do I have the right, right passage? Actually, it should be verse 15, is it not? Yeah, it's verse 15, I'm sorry. Which show the work of the law written where? Written in their hearts, their what? Conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. So this whole idea is that we have conscience, we have this innate, this innate part of us, which, by the way, where do we get that from? All men are created in the... Okay, so it's the image of God aspect that comes in. Now, all those things are good. Those arguments from creation. Those arguments from a moral code. But there's a problem with all of those. Okay, for all the good they do, they're very limited. Those arguments lack something. What do they lack? What don't they tell us? They tell us there's a designer. But what's left out? Who? Salvation is left out. What's that? Where, where he came from or where, where he came from? Okay. Okay, Let, let's just throw a whole bunch of things that, yes, people could see. Those arguments could explain, yes, there is a designer, there is a creator. But those arguments don't reveal this type of stuff. They don't reveal how many there are. They don't reveal what he's like. They don't reveal all of his power and knowledge, how much he knows. Yes, he's powerful enough to create, but what beyond that? Could his power have drained? Okay, the idea, where is he or where isn't he? The idea of how interactive is he now with his creation? The idea of what's his personality like? What are his attributes, his interests, his affections? What does he want from, this, from creation? What are his long-term plans for the creation? The idea is that you know, there's a whole lot more about God that is not revealed in these things. Okay, so the only way to get to know this God is him telling us. Okay, it's revelation that is about him. It's his self-disclosure that gives us this important information. That is the Christological argument. Okay, where we start and say, okay, this is the most important of all of them. God has revealed himself. God has told us. Now we're back in Genesis 1. Back in Genesis 1, where you start, at the very beginning of your Bible, what's it say? In the... Was what? Or in the beginning, God did what? Okay, so that's where we start. That's where we start. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That phrase, take nothing else, don't add to it. From that phrase alone, what do you learn about God? Self existence. Creator. I'm sorry. Greatest conceivable being. Okay, if, if, I just, if I'm going to be with a small, uh, uh, somebody with, without any Bible knowledge, basic Bible knowledge, I'm going to start with something very simplistic. I'm going to say God is real. Okay? I'm going to say this. You know, the idea that God is real, he existed before creation. I'm going to say this. He exists outside of space and time. By the way, this is difficult for us to understand why. 
We're finite. He's, he's infinite. Okay, there we have it. He's eternal and infinite, which we're not. We always think in space and time. He's outside of that, okay, which is clear there. He's the author of all elements of creation. Look at this. He's extremely powerful. We look at this. All parts of creation had a beginning. We look at this and we say, the, you know, he is the one, the sole witness that can give us this information. He was around. And we take witness accounts, but here he is. He's giving us eyewitness. So we get all this information. Now jump to Hebrews in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, he's going to pick up with the same idea as he talks about the greatness of Christ. But in the very beginning of Hebrews, he's writing to Jews who are monotheistic, who believe, and he's trying to explain to them Christ is God, which is a tremendous concept for them to swallow. In the, and so he starts off in Hebrews chapter 1. Tremendous text. And you may, you're going to want to mark down some, some thoughts here. God who had sundry times in a diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds who being in the brightness of his glory the express image of his person the upholding of all things by the word of his power when he had purged himself uh, when he had him, by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being so much made better than the angels etc etc Let, let's dissect the verse okay let's just get some this, this is talking about creation again when it says God who had sundry... T what is sundry? Various times? Okay. And then what's the difference between in diverse manners? Okay. Okay. Sundry times, the word literally means many portions. It has the idea over different, different times, multiple times. God who spoke... Often and at different times. That's what sundry means. Diverse manners is, and, and this is important, God didn't reveal himself just once and everything at one time. By the way, why doesn't God tell, tell one person everything he wanted to know at just one time? It would be too much. It would be way too much. Yeah, and that would, and, and the, the, the person couldn't comprehend it and worse than that, that person could be highly exalted above others. So God in, in his wisdom he spoke multiple times different and he says in, this, in different manners or different ways. How did God reveal himself in history through history? How did he tell people about himself directly? I'm not talking creation. We're not talking conscience. We're talking direct revelation from God. What did he, what were the different manners? Prophets, Dreams. Uh, what's that? Okay, an encounter, a direct encounter. Angels. Signs, okay. Other ways that he communicated himself, that he talked to people. Okay, he used tongues in the New Testament that he revealed truth that way. I, I think we've got a lot of them, okay. Did he have direct conversations with people? Yeah, he did. Okay, you can think of... Okay. Who do you have? Abraham, Moses, Elijah. Yeah. Okay, his prophets, you said. His angels, you said. Dreams, visions, 
messages did he speak through his word as it was recorded? Absolutely. Did he, what's a Christophany? Somebody here may not know. So those of you who know, what do we mean by a Christophany? Okay, it's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Before Jesus was born on this earth, did Jesus appear to people? Yes, he did. That time with Abraham. And he tells them about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a Christophany, Christ appearing. Now, he may have appeared in a temporary fleshly form that could eat, but it wasn't the permanent body. That's a Christophany, okay? And so it's like an angel appearance, but it was Christ himself. And so he spoke, and he says, now in the last days, this time period that Hebrews is being written, he says he is speaking unto us by his Son, He's revealing, this is the point, he's revealing himself through Jesus Christ. And then what he does is he mentions eight different attributes, contributions, uh, assets about Jesus Christ, but the one that you want to pause and look at, always being the brightness of God's glory. That phrase means he shared God's glory. It's the same thing that John 1, chapter 14, that he came with grace and glory. So in other words, when, when we saw Jesus, we are actually getting a snapshot of, of God, okay, to a great degree, okay. Uh, there's only one time Jesus showed the absolute brightness manifested, okay. When did Jesus do it? Uh, the transfiguration, where they said it was as the, the light. He, the express image. The word for here, and you may want to mark in your Bible, he says he is the express image of God. The exp- it's, it's um, what would you, um, a die. The die that you would use to stamp in metal. Does that make, do you know what I mean? So the stamp itself, that's the word for image. It's this idea that, boom, so that he was the, the, he was the exact representation, the exact image of it, so you would know exactly what God is like. Very revelation of God himself. Upholding all things by the word of his power, he purged our sins. He's seated on the right hand of the Father. That's what led Jesus to give this information. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've also seen the Father. Believe me, my Father is in me, and I'm in the Father, and we are one. Okay, so we have this idea that Jesus is communicating God because he's God in the flesh, okay? And so to say, how do we know there's a God? We have the witness of Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is in the flesh, which is tremendous. The idea that if anybody can tell us who God is, is there a God, it's going to be Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. You know, he's... How do you deny there's a God when Jesus is there? He's God in the flesh. It reminds me, and I've told you about this, that when Deb and I went to a funeral back in uh, several years ago, we went to Myerstown to, to a funeral. We're standing in the funeral parlor, in the parlor and we're waiting in line, and a comment by the people standing in front of us started talking about Faith Baptist Church. So I eavesdropped. Okay? And I'm listening to these people talk, and they're talking about that's a crazy church. And they're, they're saying, the pastor there is absolutely off the wall. Now I'm really curious, okay? <laughs> so I'm listening, and they said, he preaches 
all kinds of weird things. He, and the one person, yeah, I heard that he preaches it's sin to have a red car. And so at that point, I couldn't resist. And I just said, hey, excuse me, I heard you talking about Faith Baptist Church and the pastor. How do you know that stuff about him? Oh, our friends, da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, we heard this, and we heard this, and we heard this. I said, have you ever met him? And the three people there, they, they've never met the pastor of Faith Baptist Church. Okay? And they're not talking about my brother, okay, who was the other pastor here years ago. Um, and so I said, well, you know, I know for a fact that he doesn't preach against red cars. And they said, how do you know? And I said, well, actually... I'm the pastor of Faith Baptist Church. <laughs> and they were like, huh. And, I, and so they're, they're quiet for a second. And so I said, I'm the pastor of Faith Baptist Church. And I have, in fact, I came here today driving my red car. And one of them just, they were, not only do you preach weird, you're a hypocrite. You preach against red cars and you drive one. And it's like, no, 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 you missed the whole point. I don't preach against red cars. And as much as I try to convince them that, for instance, that illustration, they wouldn't believe me. And it's like, I'm the guy you're talking about. I don't do that. I drove red cars in the past. Have I ever preached against red cars? All the time. All the time. Thanks. <laughs> you're probably the one that heard it from. Okay. <laughs> You know, so if you have the person who is telling you and you still deny it and still you go, what in the world? Well, that's like people looking at Jesus and saying, what does he know? Jesus was God. He was telling them. And what better witness that we have? And so we not only have, and the Christological argument is the most tremendous argument that we have. And as, as I already said, God doesn't, in Genesis 1, take time to prove himself. He just says, I am. Deal with it. And so when people talk, there is this argument, the experiential argument. You're going to find it flawed to a degree because you can say it's a weak argument. But I would again remind you what we said last week. If you're talking with somebody who is challenging you, ask them if they ride in a car. Ask them if they fly in a plane. Ask them if they buy groceries. We said this last week. You have to operate by faith in order to drive a car. You believe that that car is going to start. You believe it's going to stop when you hit the brakes. You believe others on the road are going to observe the rules. You have faith in the plane getting up and, more importantly, landing safely. You have faith in the pilot. You have faith that the groceries that they're selling are, are, are not poisonous, that your payment is going to... You have faith in all those things. How, do you, how come people believe that their car is going to be able to operate? Experience. Testimony of others. Okay, those are valid those are valid evidences for belief. Now I know that those who are in the so-called the pseudo-intellectuals who would say you can't use experience as an argument, why not? You do it all the time in your life. You live that way every day. We do it all the time. You sat on a pew today. In faith that that pew would what? It would hold you up. How come you did that? 
experience of yourself or of others or you were told that the pew won't collapse okay you who sit on this side of the auditorium you sit here by great faith this is a flex wall which means that this wall has the opportunity to flex in strong weather to help keep the rest of the building from cracking and having a problem. So sometimes if you're sitting here in a real strong windy Sunday and you hear that wall flexing, some of you still sit there. Okay. You, you, you moved to the middle for that reason? Over here. Over here. Okay. Larry, you're a problem today. Okay. okay. You, but, but you believe that that wall is going to stay there. Why? It's been there for 20-some years. You've heard it going, eh, 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 you know, before. It's experience, ex don't discount experience, but in these type of arguments, the pseudo-intellectual wants to say, you can't count that. Just remind them they do it every day. They operate by this. Okay, so by personal experience, by personal testimony, what do we say? I know there's a God. By personal experience. Like what? What do we mean by that? Have you ever talked to him? Have any of you ever talked to God? Yeah, have, has he talked to you? Has he changed you? Yeah, so we go and we say, okay, we talk to him, he convicts us. I don't know about you, I've sat in preaching and the Spirit of God has deeply convicted me over things that I have excused and justified and all of a sudden, whammo, I get it. Where did that come from? Okay? The, the idea that he's arranged things in our lives. The idea that he has changed us. Let me, let me give you a, a, a true story of, we're going back into history, and this is uh, from that, that book that we were promoting. But here's just an account. Other evidence for the reality of God's existence is his clear presence in the lives of men and women today. Where Jesus Christ is believed and trusted, a profound change takes place in the individual and often in the community. One of the most moving illustrations of this is recorded by Ernest Gordon, chaplain at Princeton University. In his book, Valley of the Kwai, he tells how during World War II, the prisoners of the Japanese on Malay Island, uh, Peninsula, excuse me, had been reduced to almost to that of being animals, stealing food from their buddies who were also starving. In their desperation, the prisoners decided it would be good to read the New Testament. Because Gordon was a university graduate, they asked him to lead in the scripture reading. By his own admission at this moment, he was an unbeliever. He was a skeptic. And those who asked him to lead were mostly unbelievers as well. He and the others, though, as they read and read and read in that prisoner's camp, the New Testament, came to trust Christ on becoming, um, he and others came to trust Christ on becoming acquainted with him and all of his beauty and power through the uncluttered simplicity of the New Testament. How this group of scrounging, clawing humans was transformed into a community of love is a touching and powerful story that demonstrates clearly the reality of God and Jesus Christ. Many others today, in less dramatic terms, have experienced the same reality. And he had gone on and talked about how instead of stealing from one another, all of a sudden as they read the scriptures, there was a transformation where they took care of one another. They started sacrificing for one another. The, the work of God, even in society, is absolutely amazing. And yet, there are people who know the truth and they will deny him. I will give you the quote from this gentleman. His name is, as we put up here, um, J.W.N. Sullivan. 
at the time of his death a few years ago, he was uh, said to be one of the world's four or five most brilliant, brilliant interpreters of physics to the world of common man. He wrote this. The beginning of the evolutionary process raises a question which is yet unanswerable. What was the origin of life on this planet? Until fairly recent times, there was a pretty general belief in the occurrence of spontaneous generation. It was supposed that lowly life forms developed spontaneously from some putrefying meat, for example. But careful experiments show that this conclusion was due to improper observation. And it came, became an accepted doctrine that life never arises except from life. So far as actual evidences go, this is still the only possible conclusion. Things could not have evolved the way they said. But since it is a conclusion that seems to lead back to a supernatural creative act, it is a conclusion that we scientific men find very difficult to accept. For that reason, most of us scientific men prefer to believe that life just spontaneously arose in some way yet not understood. Know the truth, but you reject it. And you deny it. Okay, so if somebody denies the existence of God, what are they saying? What are they saying? They're saying this that would lead you and me to conclude man is supreme, answerable to no one. Right? If, if we're the highest of creation because there's no God, we don't answer to anybody. Would you prefer that? I'm saying, would, would mankind in general, sinful mankind, would sinful mankind re prefer this? Yeah, yeah, okay. Man is innately good and getting better as time goes by. You haven't listened to the news. You just haven't listened. Okay, you haven't aged at all. Okay, you haven't aged. Everything, including mankind, is evolving into a better and higher state of existence. I don't think the education system is evolving into a better state of existence. Okay, here you go. Man has the ability to solve all problems and make a world a better place. That means the answers are in Washington. Okay. I mean, do our, our leaders, do they have answers for all the problems? Sure. No, no. It just, they, there is nothing, here's, here's the, the catch. There's nothing more to life than what we experience here. Okay? There's nothing more. In other words, when we die, we're done. There's nothing. How would you describe that type of an individual? Hopeless? Lost? Okay. And so this whole idea of that, and, and, and let's conclude what Scripture says. Okay? And again, we don't mean this in a condescending way. We're not going to tell somebody, you know, we're not going to say it that way, but here's what Scripture says. The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Okay? Okay, so we take that and we say, okay, we, we, we know there's a God. The reason we accept it is we have all these evidences, but the bottom line is we believe there is a God by faith, by faith. Okay, let me, let me get you into a question that is really, it's, it's challenging, but for you guys you can handle this. But it's an important question. It's not going to come from the unsaved. 
for, for the most part. But I have had the experience a couple times in services. I remember several probably about five years ago, somebody's sitting over here in a service afterwards and they started asking questions and it was a matter of minutes that it was very clear that this person did not believe in the Trinity. And they had a different idea of uh, Jesus not being God, etc., etc., and uh, started challenging through some scriptures. So are there religions that teach there is no Trinity? Within um, and I'm going to use this in a very, 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 very big way. Within Christendom, are there groups that believe there is no Trinity? Okay, okay. So let's, let's talk about for just brief moments, okay? And let's make sure we, we are accurate in history and accurate with the word, okay? In history, this has been a discussion more so from the, from the life of Christ on. The reason being... Why did it really stir after Christ's death, burial, and ascension into heaven? Because Jesus was God, okay? Before that, there wasn't this debate amongst the monotheists of having God in heaven and a God in the flesh on earth. And so it started, if you go back in history, the real discussion of Trinity started after Jesus Christ went into heaven with the beginning of Christianity. Part of the reason is this. When you think about Trinity, where is, it, where is the phrase in the Bible, the word Trinity? It's not in scriptures. It's not in scriptures. It's not going to be there. But neither is words like rapture. It's not there. Okay. Um, Sunday school is not there. Okay. Um, so are a number of terms. But it's never mentioned in the Bible. It is never explained or elaborated upon. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has a whole dissertation on what doctrine? What important future event? The resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 has a whole explanation of what important... um, Yeah, loving one another... Um, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 has a lot of explanation of, about personal ethics as a citizen of heaven or the kingdom of God. So there are some passages that give you a lot of... Colossians 1 is, a, is an extended passage that gives... And Hebrews 1 gives you a lot of information about the deity of Christ and gives you proof. There isn't a particular text in scripture that says, let's explain the Trinity. It, it, there isn't one. Okay, it doesn't happen. And it's impossible for us to understand how can there be one but three. And the reason we don't understand this is there's nothing like it. There's nothing that we have that's really like it. We have some similarities, but nothing to that complexity. And so it just bottom line is he's infinite, we're finite, so it's hard for us to fully comprehend. But there are other such mysteries in the Bible, such as, how do you explain the virgin birth? How do you explain 100% God, 100% man? We look in scriptures and says, and we say, it happened. It happened. God did it. How do you explain a miracle scientifically? Yeah, it, ha- yeah, it, it happened. It was, it was you know, how do you explain... You know, the resurrection one day. It's stated. It's there. We accept it by 
faith. Okay, and so, but we base our faith not on just a simple thought, and we don't base our faith, this is very important, we don't base it on church history or traditions. That's what this whole idea of Trinity, you'll hear this frequently. It's based upon such and such a council or another. Forget the councils. Go back to what? Scriptures. I'll go back to scriptures. I don't care what church councils said. Could church councils be wrong? Yeah, yeah. Were they at times? Yeah, yeah, they were. So as a result, there are, being, there are some who have come up with alternative ideas to make it more reconcilable, to make it more understandable, which we are still facing some of this today. We even have groups in our local community that fit some of this. Okay? For instance, some would say this, and you hear this in church history, that there are many gods, there's a uh, panorama of gods, but the highest were the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And you and I would say, nope. Nyeh. But that's a, that's a discussion. There have been groups in the past that have given this. Some have said there are three gods, three separate gods, who work as a, in a triune fashion. They're three different entities, totally, separately, but they worked in, a, in tandem. And you and I would say, scriptures doesn't support that either. Here's where it gets even more hairy. There are those, and this is in Christendom, there are those that say the three were basically one. In the Old Testament, he appeared as God. In the Gospels, he appeared as Jesus. After that, he appeared as they didn't operate simultaneously. They are three distinct individuals, but basically they're one individual who appeared in three forms. Does that make sense? Don't, yeah. You don't have to accept it. But that's, that is, became a very common argument in church history. This idea that God is one God, but he appeared in three forms. Okay? We got, there's, there's scriptural problems with that. Here is what's more popular even today, that Jesus is God, but he wasn't always. He became equal with God. He was a created being. There are two major groups in our community that promote this one. Jehovah Witness is one. Mormons is the other. Okay? And their view is that Jesus wasn't always God, but today Jesus is God. So when you get into a discussion and you, and they, you, 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 you go in this talking and you ask them, well, do you believe Jesus is God? They're going to answer, yes, that's not the question. Do you believe Jesus has always been God? That's the question. Okay, and this is... Um, this, there was two views, Athanasius and Arius, that, that debated this in some of the church councils very early on. And uh, there was a big separation and all that in church history. So the groups that teach it. So our question is going to be, do we believe Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father were all equally God? That means equally eternal. Do we believe that? Are they one? How do you know that? How do you well we operate by faith, but what do you base that upon? What scriptures do you base it upon? 
The Lord our God is one God. So how do you get Jesus and the Spirit in there? Okay, okay. Um, you're going back to Elohim. The word Elohim is a plural uh, noun. Okay, Elohim is the plural. Elohim would be the singular. In the Hebrew, uh, where it talks about God, literally G-O-D capital, oftentimes should be G-O-D-S if we were going to be grammatically following the rules. However, other theology teaches us I the Lord, I am one God. So we can't use Elohim as a God's plural. It's God singular and yet the name implies multiplicity. Okay? Does that make sense? No. So I'll leave you with that one. We're going to pick up in, in two weeks.